You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. Working through the, the solas of the Reformation, and uh, it, it is my goal. I, I often don't make, make my goal, uh, but it, it's my objective to help you understand, even though we're using big terms and we're using Latin terms, that that understanding theology is understanding who God is, that every sin you have ever committed is, has been a reflection of a theological problem in your heart. In other words, you are not seeing God as he is and you're not responding to him the way he's called you to respond to him. So as we look at sola scriptura and sola gratia and sola fide and today solus Christus and, and Lord willing next week, soli deo gloria, uh, these are practical doctrines. Not so much that you have to learn to pronounce them or remember them or spell them, but that you remember that our God is big and good and powerful and intimately involved with the people he sent his son to rescue. So I'm going to, even though we are not um, studying a specific text of scripture, we're actually going to be looking closely at a couple of them. And I'm going to read for you from Psalm 8. Psalm 8, I'm actually going to read the whole psalm, which is quite short. This was written for the choir director on the Gatit, which may have been a musical instrument. David wrote this. It's called the Psalm of David. And this is what I would call uh, David's evening porch song. He's sitting outside uh, his palace up on the hill, and he's looking up at the night sky. Some of you might have seen some brilliance this week in the night sky. I know we did. And you're, you're looking up there, and you're saying, how majestic. And that's what David was doing. Oh, Lord... Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of of infants and nursing babes you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray, and then you can have a seat. So our Father, give us a, a glimpse while we take time, as, as poets have said, to rest our arms a while on the windowsill of heaven and gaze upon our Lord. And then we turn into this week strong because we rest on your strong arm. So show us what is bigger than us. Show us uh, our, our frailty and then adore you for who you are. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Have you ever seen a sight uh, so majestic that it, it left you in emotional awe? 
everyone has. I, my wife must be in the nursery. I, I wanted her to see this, so I'll show her later. Um, because I would say, more than likely, <laughs> uh, she and I are the only ones in this room who've, who've caught this glimpse. And my camera didn't catch this one. I caught a pretty cool one, but it wasn't anything like this at, at sunrise. This is actually Snowmass Lake, uh, and that's Snowmass Mountain, one of the 14,000-foot peaks in Colorado. When, when you're in a place like this, seeing something that, that brings you to say, wow, look at that. It ought to do something. Everyone's been at this place where, where you're in awe, and it may have been a natural wonder, or it may have been a human feat to say, how does that guy do that? How does that gal do that with her body? Look what they're doing. That's incredible. What a voice. What strength, what finesse, you know, what, whatever it is that brings us to say, wow. Do you realize you were wired to be wowed? It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. God designed us not only to, to survive, but to stand in awe of what he made. When you have that experience, whether it's the natural wonder or the human feet or some, something that happens, it, it makes you realize that you're very finite, it makes you realize that there are realities much bigger than you, much bigger than you can ever imagine. You're little. And when you recognize that you are little, that you are small, the recognition of one's smallness actually ought to be, anyway, more comforting than it is disturbing. When you are saying, whether next to whatever kind of greatness, whatever kind of majesty, whether it's a person that you say, I don't even feel qualified to be in the same room with this person, or, or you're standing next to one of the 14,000 foot peaks in the Rocky Mountains, or better, it's more comforting than it is disturbing. And now it is disturbing, or ought to be, because it forces you to confess something. Your strength and your skill cannot even move people, let alone mountains. You don't get your way in, in every circumstance with the people you're in, with whom you're in relationship, with your circumstances, with your flat tires, with your mechanical problems and your financial problems, let alone, again, moving mountains. It's disturbing when you're little and powerless. But let me tell you why it's comforting. It's comforting because you've been left with words, and I'll call it revelation from God. Words that promise you of a person who is infinite and who created the majestic things that put you in awe. And so here's David saying, what, where do I put my focus? I'm looking at all creation, but he's not worshiping the creation. David would not have sung this world is my father, he would have sung, this is my father's world. He's, he's glorifying the creator and looking up at the sky, and that's what we do, whether it's the sky we're looking at or some other wonderful thing. I'm introducing this this way because the reformers brought back the biblical message that the preeminent one, the one whom we all should be adoring when we're seeing incredible things that are bigger than us and better than us. The reformers brought back the, back the biblical message that the preeminent one, the central focus of all the created universe, the hope for life beyond this finite fallen world is Jesus Christ. 
Christian scholars have called this the doctrine of solus Christus. And it's a, and ought to be, a, a big doctrine, and it covers a lot of territory. I'm going to try and do it in a little bit of time, but I, I want you to see places in Scripture. So we're going to fly through a number of places in Scripture right now that, that turn the attention of everyone who is listening to the truth that Jesus is the central object of worship and of revelation of, of the whole Scriptures. Everything comes back to him. The whole book of Hebrews, if you've ever studied the book of Hebrews, I, years ago I was talking to one of the men in the church and I was saying, you know, he was saying, well, what are you going to study next, next in Sunday school and what are you going to teach through in the worship service? I said, honestly, I've been brewing on Hebrews, but I'm a little bit afraid to cover Hebrews because it just, it seems so, so heavy and I'm not sure if I can handle it. And he said, do it, do it. And it, it spurred me on to do that and, and I thought, okay. And uh, actually taught through Hebrews on, I think it was Wednesday nights. And now I've been teaching it in Haiti. Um, and it, it, it's, it's a rich thing. It, it's a rich piece of revelation because it takes us to solus Christus. Christ alone. The Lord Jesus, before whoever wrote Hebrews, wrote Hebrews, communicated this as well. The Bible scholars in Jesus' day needed to know that the one standing in front of them was the central focus of their scriptures. And so he said to some of his distractors, uh, detractors rather, in uh, John chapter 5, he said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, you guys know the Bible so well. It is these that testify about me. Guys, when you're, when you're reading these things about creation, who do you think the creator is? Creator standing right in front of you. You read about the rescuer from the time this universe became a fallen place and you read all of these prophecies about the ruler who would come, about the king, about Messiah. All of this is pointing to me, Jesus said. Jesus is in his home, we call it in his home church. He went to the synagogue in Nazareth and he in the synagogue, and they, they weren't real wild about him because it's like, that's a local boy, this is the carpenter, the carpenter's son. You know, who is he? And in the synagogue, the, the, the scroll was being read. I believe it was in Isaiah. And, and after the scripture is read, the attendant takes, takes the, the big scroll away. And then whoever's doing the teaching would sit down, which I kind of like that, that picture of sitting down to teach. We don't do it that way. But look what this says. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him him. Now, keeping in mind what we're talking about here, solus Christus, everybody in the room is focused on Jesus. The scripture has just been read, this rich text of the Old Testament about setting captives free. And he began to say, this is the opening of his sermon, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What a place to sit. To be able to sit there and say, just now. This was, this was written 700 years ago. And right now where you're sitting, you have in all of history, you've been privileged to hear the fulfillment of this prophecy that's just been read to you. What's Jesus saying? I am the preeminent one. I alone am, am the one you are to worship. After the resurrection of Christ, he met two disciples on the road to, to Emmaus, Cleopas and a friend. 
and he he was coy with them. He they they said to him, are you, "Are you the only one that doesn't know what's what things have been going on around Jerusalem in these days? You know, why are you so sad?" He had asked them, and they said, "Are you the only one who doesn't know what's going on?" And he said, "What things?" And yet, as the Lord Jesus walked along, he taught them. He went back to Moses. He started with Genesis, we would say. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He says, you want to read your Bible? You're reading about me. I remember we had an exchange student many years ago here in church uh, from a, a uh, a formal denominational background, and he really didn't have a whole lot of uh, idea about where he stood with Jesus. He just knew he was supposed to go to church, and so he'd grown up in a traditional church setting. And here was his comment about about the Christians here in the United States that, that he had connected with. He said, I grew up talking about God. You guys talk about Jesus. We ought to plead guilty to that. Yes, Jesus is God, but, but we can use that generic word God or Allah across a, a, a wide spectrum. The Lord Jesus, if we talk about worshiping the God of the Bible, he is approached through this one, which is why Solus Christus is such a practical doctrine for all of us and what we believe and how we behave. Jesus affirmed to his disciples that his claims were absolutely exclusive. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You've read this, but you know, the preachers of the early church did the same thing. As Peter was preaching in, uh, uh, let me back up, we'll get uh, Philip opening his mouth and beginning with this scripture preaching Jesus to him. This is Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch saying, hey, you want to read Isaiah 53? Do you know what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I unless somebody explains it to me? Beginning from this scripture, from Isaiah 53, he preached Jesus to him. And now as Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which me must be saved. Exclusive claims. The exclusive gospel message of Paul narrowed the focus of his ministry everywhere he went. And so when the Apostle Paul came into Corinth, and we don't know what kind of fears he experienced there. It may have just been because he was, he'd grown up a conservative Jew, and now perhaps for the first time in his life, he's living in a city where, where there is very open immorality. And, and he's, it would be like taking a, a Midwesterner and just planting them for an extended period of time uh, on Times Square in New York City. It's a little bit of a shock to your system. And so Paul was afraid while he was in Corinth, and the, the believers there encouraged him and protected him and comforted him. And when he later wrote them a letter, it's like, what do you think he wrote? What, what was the message of the Apostle Paul in Corinth? And it, it wasn't about taking over the social order. There was something else. He said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was just all Jesus all the time. I was all gospel all the time, Paul said, because that, that was this solus Christus message, Christ alone. It's, it's it. There is no other message that we have. It's not Christ and something. Christ and, and 
psychology, Christ and, and your career, Christ and your talents, and we, we move together, you begin to understand, and hopefully all of us are, as we're working through the solas of the Reformation, that these people finally rediscovered this truth of the Bible, that, that salvation is all a work of God, that our faith is all a work of God, that it is all about Jesus, and ultimately he will get the glory for that. The book of Colossians is one that Paul wrote. I don't think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, but Colossians and Hebrews have a very similar theme. And so in Colossians, Paul writes, speaking of King Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And that takes us to the present role of Jesus as high priest, which places him at the center of all of our cries to heaven. When we pray, it's not wrong to pray, dear God, help me. But you realize, as a believer in Christ, you can't approach this God without the high priest about whom we sang this morning, before the throne of God above. So the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So here's a definition, and uh, it's not the definition to end all definitions, but uh, for what it's worth, this is, this is what I think Solus Christus is, is communicating to us. It's a biblical teaching that affirms the person Jesus the Messiah and his atoning work with no additions as the central message of all the revelation of God. It is about Jesus. And that means, if, if you've had a, t- a wandering time in your life, for instance, as somebody who either wasn't a believer and, and came to faith, you had your eyes open and you, you finally realize the error of your ways and you've, you've come to faith, from being an unbeliever to a believer or f- being a believer who's grown cold, and that happens, doesn't it? You've, you've gotten lazy in your spiritual life. I'm saying when that transition happened, it could not happen apart from you worshiping Jesus Christ. Coming to the place where you, as, as a teenager, uh, like me, I, I should say, if you, if you were like me as a teenager, coming to this place where your eyes are opened and you can sit in the dark in your 73 Plymouth Duster and talk to him as a friend and tell him you love him because Jesus becomes everything. He becomes the the center of it all. No, No generic God talk. This is King Jesus. When we speak of Solus Christus, this is the creator of everything. This is God the Son. It's not taking away from the the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. It is realizing that when we study the scriptures, the gospel of John, for instance, that we've been going through for these last couple of years, when you see this, you read John saying, no one has seen God at any time. In other words, in all his glory. 
The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. If I want to know about God the Father, Jesus said, Philip, you've seen me? You've seen the Father. I, I get the full-blown picture of who my heavenly Father is, whom no one has seen in this person, Jesus, who came to earth to die for sinners. There's a modern coalition of Christians who weren't trying to undefine anything from the past. In fact, quite the opposite. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals back in 1996 reaffirmed this doctrine in this way. We reaffirm that our salvation is accomplished by the mediatorial work of the historical Christ alone. Do you see how Christ alone? Solus Christus is in the middle of this. We're, we're saying, these, these Christians were saying, we're not going to leave that message. Only what Jesus did uh, will save us. His sinless life and substitutionary atonement alone are sufficient for our justification and reconciliation to the Father. Not only did they reaffirm, but they said, and because we reaffirm this, here's what we deny. We deny that the gospel is preached if Christ's substitutionary work is not declared and faith in Christ and his work is not solicited. In other words, we're not calling people to say, hey, just, just come to God. Just start believing in God. That might be a message that you would hear from a lot of, of segments of, of our religious culture. We're not simply saying, come to some generic God. We're saying, come to Jesus. We're saying, there, you will not meet the God of the Bible. Regardless of your religious heritage, when we talk about who worships the same God as us and who doesn't worship the same God as us, any, any religious group who does not come to God through the Son is not worshiping the God of the Bible we deny that the gospel is preached if Christ's substitutionary work is not declared and faith in Christ and his work is not solicited. Let me tell you what this means. This means that salvation is found nowhere else but in Christ and his work. We've got to affirm that, church. That, that has to be something where, where we say, this is where we stand. We can't compromise this. We have to say that Christ and his work are the center of Christian worship. That when we gather here, when we're delighting in, in creation or God's deeds or his character, all of it is coming back to Christ and his work. This also means that the identity of a follower of Christ is wrapped up in Christ himself rather than Christ plus anything. And we should never seek to bypass Christ as our only mediator in our prayers. We don't pray to anyone else. We, it, it is wrong. It is blasphemous for us to pray to anyone but Jesus. And I, I know people in their deep grief, be, be gracious with them, who have, who, who have lost a loved one and, and they're, they're talking, talking to their loved one. But, but friends, remember, our, our comfort in our grief, our only comfort in life and death is, is this truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. From Reformation scholars to modern teachers, the importance of this doctrine has been continually repeated. I'm going to go through these a little bit fast, but if you want them, I'll email them to you. Martin Luther I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. From our own church's confession of faith, 
This office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God, and may not be either in whole or any part thereof transferred from him to any other. Solus Christus. He's the one and only. You can't give that to Michael the archangel. You can't give that to another created being. Charles Spurgeon said, if you put one atom of trust in yourself, you have no faith. But if you place even a particle of reliance upon anything else but what Christ did, you have no faith. If you trust in your works, then your works are antichrist. And Christ and antichrist can never go together. Christ will have all or nothing. He must be a whole savior or no savior at all. A modern scholar, R. Scott Clark, said, the heart of the gospel is not about us. Now, we could, we could have stopped there, right? The heart of the gospel is not about us. It's not about our, our decisions that we make. It's not about turning over the new leaf. The heart of the gospel is Christ for us. This was the essence of Paul's message, that Christ came for us to do for us what we could not and would not do. He obeyed. He was crucified. He was raised. He is ascended. He is returning. The medieval church turned the gospel into a message about what Christ is doing in us by grace in sanctification and about what we must uh, do to do our part in order to benefit, cooperate with grace. But the good news is, we have no part. Not in this story. We're recipients. We're beggars. We're not contributors to the story. Michael Horton, if our preaching does not center on Christ from Genesis to Revelation, no matter how good or helpful, it is not a proclamation of God's word. If, if a, a, a a messenger of God can stand, or a, someone who claims to be a messenger of God can stand behind this pulpit with an open Bible and simply talk about um, self-help from the Bible and easy steps to this or that without focusing on who Christ is, as Horton says, from Genesis to Revelation. We're not proclaiming God's word as he gave it to us. James Montgomery Boyce. The Reformers taught that salvation is by and through the work of Jesus Christ only, which is what the slogan Solus Christus refers to. It means that through the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus has done it all so that now no merit on the part of man, no merit of the saints, no works of ours performed either here or in purgatory can add to his completed saving work. So what we're going to do through the rest of, of the, the short time we have together before I get to some application points, I want us to look at a short text of scripture from Hebrews chapter 4. And so you might want to go there. I am, I am projecting it on the screen. But you, if you have your Bible open, you can scribble in it and, and, and look at some of the context. In Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm going to read the first four verses, we're going to break this down. I pointed out coming in, we're talking about Christ alone, solus Christus, how this is the message of all of the Bible. And I'm saying the book of Hebrews itself really, really is. I mean, it could have been called solus Christus because the book of Hebrews is calling first century Hebrews to understand King Jesus is the focal point of your faith, not your performance And it says chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 1. That's a typo. 
Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And then he goes on to say, did God ever talk to the angels like he talked to the creator of the angels? And there's, there's a richness at the end of Hebrews chapter 1. But let's just look at that first phrase. God. Does that sound familiar? Genesis starts that way. The Gospel of John starts that way. The word order actually in the original doesn't start with God. It, it starts with two words meaning many parts and many ways. So the book of Hebrews says many parts, many ways, God. The words actually include uh, the vision seen by Ezekiel and Isaiah and Daniel and the audible voice that spoke to Moses. N many, many portions, many ways. The voice that spoke to Samuel, the voice that spoke to Elijah. Certainly the inspiration, if not audible voice, of the writings of David and Asaph and the sons of Korah as we're reading the Psalms. God spoke. Many parts, many ways. And the writer of Hebrews says in these last days he's spoken to us through his son. In his son. The central theme is Jesus. But it is divine revelation as well. In other words, God really does speak to men. Francis Schaeffer years ago wrote a book called He is There and He is Not Silent. He isn't just off somewhere reacting to us. This is a God who's shown himself to us. He's revealed himself to us as much as he wanted to reveal to us. God really does speak. This doesn't mean, by the way, that God didn't speak through the apostles. It just means that in these last days, and you say, well, last days? Well, apparently, when the book of Hebrews was written, the last days had already begun. So we, we've been living in them our whole lives. So we don't determine that based on something we read in the paper. We have been, as the church has always been, looking for Jesus to come, looking for the Lord from heaven. So when Jesus died and rose again, the writer of Hebrews is saying, in these last days, God has spoken to us through him. The message is all about the Son. It's spoken through the Son. And he says, this is the Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The Son is both the heir of all things and the creator of all things. And John and Paul, in first chapter of, of the Gospel of John, first chapter of Colossians, spoke of Jesus creating the world, the cosmos. And here, the word world is different. It's a plural word, worlds, you could say, or it could be translated ages, through whom he made the ages or the worlds. And that word commonly refers to eternity. But the idea of creation also occurs in Hebrews 11. I'll just read quickly from Hebrews 11. By faith we understand that the worlds, 
that's the same word, that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And I'm telling you why this is worth noting, okay? This is worth noting because of the rise of a false teaching in the first century called Gnosticism. These were people who used, and by the way, they still do, uh, they're still around, uh, even in our town, that word ion that was used here, they actually used that word of angelic beings and they contended that these angelic beings were creators of the cosmos, of the created order in the world. There's a dramatic point that the writer of Hebrews is making here that you and I would do well to get. And Paul made the same point in Colossians. Even though this letter warns Hebrews against turning away from Jesus and the gospel to legalism, the language also makes the letter an assault to this denial of the person and work of Christ. Gnostics believed matter is evil, and so God couldn't create evil, and so this God being created a being that created a being that created a being, and all these ions, all of these angelic creatures, uh, finally we got down to this world, and that's why things are so messed up, because it's gotten so far from the creator. Bible's got a better explanation, right? Solus Christus. He's the creator, and he's the redeemer of the creation that fell. So, the writer of Hebrews says, he's the heir of all things, and he's the creator of matter. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his, na- of his nature. And th- this radiance is a great translation here, by the way. And it really is reminiscent of the glory that led Israel through the wilderness. If you did table talk this week, that was one of the questions. Where, where did you see the radiance of God in Scripture? And the one that came to my mind immediately when I wrote the question down was, was the Shekinah glory, the glory of God that led Israel by day and night through the wilderness. Here's the presence of God. It's this glowing presence. It's bright. You, you can't come too close to it. Moses longed to see this radiance. This is the radiance that filled the tabernacle when they did things God's way. This is saying Jesus is the shining radiance of God. He's the glory of God in a person. And more than just radiance, he's what some theologians have called very God. He's not just light, something impersonal, or some being who's somewhat divine. He's God himself. In fact, the word translated exact representation in the text that's in front of you right now is the source of our word character. So Jesus said this when he told the disciples, he who has seen me has seen the Father. If you want to see the Father, you look at me in actions. We're not talking about physical presence. We're talking about his actions. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his neighbor, na- nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And, and this phrase speaks of the way Jesus upholds or actually carries the creation itself. He holds everything together. Paul explained this power to the church at Colossae when he said, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. What keeps atoms from blowing apart? You know how much energy is released when that happens. This creator of everything holds everything together. He is the magnetism of his universe. When he had made purification of sins, 
Some of your Bibles, if you have an older translation, would say when he purged our sins, which is, by the way, since we're in Reformation month and talking about the Protestant Reformation, purgatory comes from the word purge, and there are people who believe that you're not quite good enough, and so when you die, you're going to have to go through this limbo state where you're purged of your sins, and, and there's the belief that there are people here who can do things to get you out of there. You want your purgatory, believer? It's right here. Jesus purged our sins on the cross. He took them all. He took them all, believer. He died for everyone who would turn to him in faith. And so when he had made purification of sins, when he had purged our sins, he sat down. The work was done. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let me tell you, sinner, purification of sins is everything to us sinners. It's everything to us. Without purification, a sinner is filthy before the face of God, and he or she dwells in this uneasy darkness of life without God, waiting for wrath, and it's imminent, and it's well-deserved. Now, without this purging, you and I are in trouble, and we ought to live in great fear. The gospel message for you, if it's somewhat new to you, or if you've never understood it, ought to bring you terror, when you start understanding Jesus as he is and understanding that one day you will stand before Christ alone and give an account, you will either be thankful that one bore your sins and took wrath or you will be in terror to realize that you thought you were good enough to do it on your own. I think this really does help clear up the debated nature of the atonement of Christ, that the death of Jesus, according to this, actually did something. It didn't just provide a potential salvation. It actually did something for its intended recipients. He made purification of sins. If this means that, that everyone across the board had purification of sins, we'd, we would be universalists. But this text isn't teaching that. If the death of Jesus actually didn't do something for its intended recipients, this would say that the Son only made potential purification for sins. The point is this, the completed work of Jesus cleansed sinners. It did something. That's why he's the preeminent one. I want you to note as well in, in this verse that the Lord Jesus took a seat. In Israel... Read the, what the job of the priests was. They never sat down. Their work was, it's like your mom, their work is never done. They are continually doing something. They're continually up serving and working. But this says Jesus sat down. His work was done. The original readers of the letter to the Hebrews would not find <clears throat> purification in temple rituals. And that was the point. They were used to the system. The people who read this letter were used to the system where the priest was just going, 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 going the whole time, offering sacrifices, offering prayers. The job continued and continued and continued. In our day, you will not find this through baptism or communion or even some imaginary afterlife purging. Jesus spoke the truth when he said, 
it is finished. And that's why he sat down, as the writer of Hebrews says. This message, by the way, is also found elsewhere in Hebrews. And let, let me read for you from Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. It's done. The work's done. Burdened about your lack of performance? Well, you and I ought to be. What do we do with that? Where do we take that when we're coming into church again, beaten down because we did that again, or because we're, we're, we're realizing our frailties, we're realizing how small we are? You're standing in front of the mountain, and to realize that you are so finite, and for that matter, so sinfully finite. The comfort in all this is not how finite you are, but how big he is. How Jesus alone is where you run. And so this, these first four verses of Hebrews chapter 1 end, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. There are these themes through Hebrews. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the priesthood. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the, uh, than the, the Old Testament system. He is better, 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 better. Better than the sacrificial system. He's better. And so we start out with Jesus is better than the angels. Even these powerful beings who, whom God has given to serve us, he's, he's better than the angels because he's inherited a more excellent name than they one of the modern cults actually says that Jesus is a created angel, that he's Michael. The writer of Hebrews won't give him that. The writer of Hebrews does not show Jesus as the one who earned an inheritance from the Father. He's, he's identified as the creator, and it shows that he's timeless. The only things that exist in the world, we've talked about this in the Gospel of John before, but I'll review that. The only things that are in the world are that are real are creation and the creator, right? I mean, you really can't have it both ways. So you have two things that are real in the world, creation and the creator. And where does Jesus fall in? Over and over. <laughs> He's the creator. And what does that tell you? He didn't earn a place as a finite being. He is the creator of everything. We're the ones who've discovered this excellent name. God's revealed himself to us and we've begun to proclaim it. The inheritance of this name came into time as we've seen his glory, as we've tasted his gifts. Even unbelievers have tasted the good gift of God and some turn away and say, no. Even having benefited from the experience of being in the church, Hebrews chapter six talks about those who walk away having tasted this. But the Lord Jesus obtained eternal redemption for his people. We are the ones who have been given the privilege of making this discovery. And so I will read again Psalm 8. The God-man, made for a time lower than the angels, but crowned with glory. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens, 
from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have crowned, you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so this, this introduction to the letter of Hebrews shows us solus Christus, and it's, it's telling us a hope in this. First of all, it's telling us that Jesus is the one in whom God speaks. That's what you learn in the beginning of Hebrews. He is the heir of all things. He is the creator of time, space, and matter. See that right at the beginning of, of Genesis chapter 1. He's the glory of God in person. He's the sustainer of creation. He's the satisfaction for sin. He's seated at the Father's right hand. Say, so you say, okay. Yeah, that ought to bring us to worship and when we're singing these songs to him or singing these songs about him. I, you know, I'm, I'm stirred by this. But let me tell you why this makes such a difference in your life. For instance, because he's the one in whom God speaks, you and I would do well to listen. When he's proclaimed, when we talk about him, this, this is something that affects you and affects your eternity. Solus Christus makes every difference in your life if you are a son or a daughter of Adam. If this is to be believed, and it is, if he's the one in whom God speaks, we would do well to listen when he's proclaimed. If he is the heir of all things, that means he's worthy to be the center of attention. He's worthy to have all of the focus be on him, uh, the heir. If he is the creator of time, space, and matter, that means he's powerful enough to solve any problem that you have. What a wonder this does for your prayers. Now you realize as a sovereign one, he's not obligated to to be your servant and, and do things as you demand. But we just read this in Psalm 37. Uh, Psalm 37, 4. How do you get what you want with God, with the creator of time, space, and matter? The one who has the power to do anything within the boundaries of his character. How, how does that affect our, our praying? And, and the point is this from Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. That's, if he is my greatest delight, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will, some of you have memorized this, right? Say it with me. Give you the desires of your heart. When my desires become his desires, I know how to pray. I know what to ask for. He becomes the center of it all. If he's the creator of time, space, and matter, he is powerful enough to solve any problem you have, and, and you realize he's, he's good enough and wise enough to tell you no when you're asking for something that wouldn't bring him ultimate glory. If he's the glory of God in person, he is the object of limitless discovery. And that means, yeah, you may know your Bible really well, and you may be able to bury most of the other people in this room in a game of Bible trivia. But there are things that you've not learned of Jesus that you would do well to learn of him. 
When you think of him, is it just all the facts that you know about who he claims to be and what he has done or what the Bible says about him? Or does the mention of the name of Jesus bring a smile to your face and to your heart? And you're, you're not just giving Sunday school answers about Jesus. You're saying, he, he is glory. I delight in him. I, I commune with the Father through him. He's revealed himself to me. He has rescued me. If he really is the glory of God in a person, we would, we would do well to seek him out at, at every turn. If he's the sustainer of creation, the way we carry out this cultural mandate to subdue the earth, whether you're tilling your garden or, or leading a nation, if he's the sustainer of creation, it becomes a holy endeavor, whatever I'm doing. Your work, unless you're committing crimes and sins against God in your work, your work becomes a holy endeavor, whatever you're doing, whether that's working from your home, working where no one can see you, or working standing in front of a big group. This is the one who rules over everything, and that means my work becomes his work. I become his hands and his feet. I become his mouthpiece in this world. I'm his ambassador. If, if I'm preaching the gospel in a stadium crusade or sweeping up turkey mess off the floor in Baron. My work is a holy endeavor, bringing him glory because he's a part of everything he made. And I bring him glory by my work when my heart is right. Two more. If he is the satisfaction for sin, you don't need to live your life in fear. If God is fully satisfied in him, he's fully satisfied in those who are in him because of his performance. Boy, is that a comfort when you messed up again, isn't it? Finally, if he is seated at the Father's right hand, you can ask for anything according to his will. You have access. You have access to the Father through the Son. You are his purchased possession. He began a good work in you and he is carrying it on to completion and that means you can ask anything. Don't just pray for the stuff you've probably got it figured out how God would have to work things out. This is the stuff that there is no possibility that, that this would ever happen apart from a work of God. Pray for those things. Pray for those impossible things because he is seated at the Father's right hand because the work is done. You can approach him and you can ask for anything, even the little things because nothing's big to him. If you are realizing and hearing these words that, that you're not sure you have a connection to this Jesus, let me tell you, there is no, there is no group to join. There is no, no magic prayer to pray. We just need to understand who we are next to him and understand this. What Jesus did on the cross was enough. Just believe. Just believe. Beg him to let you in. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace to us through the Lord Jesus. Remind us that Solus Christus changes the way we conduct ourselves in our homes, in our marriages, with our children, with other believers in church, changes the way we work, or at least it ought to. So bring us to embrace this glorious truth that the Lord Jesus is the, the center of it all. 
change us, we pray, through the power of Christ. In his name, amen. Sing like